This week on Geeksplained, in the finale of Geektober 2021, NerdSync's own Scott Nicewander returns to the podcast to dive into one of my favorite films of the spooky season, as we discuss the magically scoobtastic adventure known as Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost. Welcome back to Geeksplained. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is the finale of Geektober 2021. Uh, I am uh, feeling a lot better. Thank you to everyone who has sent their well wishes and for all of my amazing guests over the past month. Um, I want to give a quick special shout to uh, Jacob Brown and Malcolm Russell Nelson, my co-hosts on the Geeksplained Book Club, where every Friday we're, we've been going through the uh, entire series of Invincible, and they really came in clutch this past week when I was unfortunately unable to record. Um, They're amazing. Love you guys. But this episode specifically is part four of Geektober 2021, and it is the finale. We've gone through every single corner of the Halloween season. We've talked about video games. We've talked about film. We've talked about comics. And now we're going to bring it all back to animation. Specifically, Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo, where are you? You've been asking this entire month. Well, here he is. Is. We're going to be doing a deep dive into Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost, one of my favorite Scooby-Doo adventures. It might be my favorite Scooby-Doo movie for very sentimental reasons, which we'll get into. And to talk about Scooby-Doo, to talk about the Halloween season as it relates to Mystery Incorporated... One of my favorite guests, Scott Nicewander from the NerdSync YouTube channel, has returned to help me discuss this amazing film. We had a wonderful conversation, and I cannot wait to share that with you. But uh, last week was kind of, as I explained uh, last episode, kind of like a Geeksplain Light episode, where we just did a quick intro and outro, and then we let the amazing conversation between myself and Owen from the Owen Likes Comics YouTube channel speak for itself on Marvel Zombies. This week, we are back in full force. I am on the mend. I am on the road to recovery. And I am raring to go, and there is a lot to talk about. So uh, alongside our main story this uh, this episode, we also have a giant-sized weekly review where I'll be talking about both episodes of Doom Patrol that I have missed for the last couple of weeks. We have... 
an amazing amount of comics to talk about. I'll touch briefly on the comics that I missed out on talking about last week, and then we've got some really great comics to talk about this week in this week's Comics Countdown. And we have a giant-sized news segment. Two full weeks of comic book, TV, film, and miscellaneous news. I am very excited about it. So before we get into everything else, let's go ahead and check in with this giant-sized segment of this week's news. All right, guys and dolls, let's talk some news. We have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous, and it's been a little bit. It's been two weeks since we had our last news segment, and in that time, oh boy, has there been a lot of news. (laughs) I knew that I was going to be playing catch-up this week when it came to news, but... As I kept adding to the news notes that I have on uh, my Google Doc for this podcast, I was blown away by the amount of stuff that we've got on here. So um, real quick, I just want to start things off uh, with miscellaneous news. Um, Unfortunately, sad news because uh, over the past week, Chris Ayers, who was a voice actor... I was introduced to him uh, as Frieza in Dragon Ball Kai, Dragon Ball Z Kai, um, and then furthermore in Dragon Ball Super, more recently for me, it was Dragon Ball Super Broly. Um, he passed away, unfortunately, over the past week, and it's really, it's sad. Um, he was having some health issues, Um Prior to this, breathing issues, and unfortunately, over the past week, uh, we lost one of the greats. Um, It's been really sad, but also really heartwarming to see the community around him, not just, you know, fans, but also people in the voice acting community, people in the dub community, people from all walks of life who were touched by Chris Ayers as a performer and as a human being so um, just want to send all the love in the world to uh, the heirs family and I want you the listeners to remember love and laughter always so diving into the news here we uh, let's kick things off with I guess we should just start with the biggest news uh, which was DC Fandom DC Fandom was uh, over the past two weeks Um, I didn't get the chance to talk about it so I'm going to talk about it here um, rounding things out with miscellaneous news and then we'll dive into all the stuff that happened outside of Fandom so Fandom was not as good as last year's I'm sorry I you know I think that they did their best but this really felt like kind of a one act show um everybody was tuning in for the Batman trailer which was spectacular and I'll talk about it in a second but the big thing was at the end and everything else was just felt like it was filling time there were some really cool announcements um some trailers and stuff but it really did feel like they were basing it all around the Batman which is not what last year's was last year had a ton of stuff so I'm hoping that they learn from this I'm hoping that next year's fandom is even better um but for the stuff that was covered 
Let's talk about it. So first off, uh, we got the announcement that a milestone animated film is in development. That's super cool. I'm really excited about that. I love the recent revival of the milestone uh, imprint. Books have been stellar, and any milestone stuff is good in my book. Uh, speaking of animated stuff, we also got the announcement that, you know, we, it was really cool how they did this, right? So Young Justice, Young Justice Phantom Season 4, uh, had its first footage shown at Fandom, and then immediately after showing the teaser image, there or the teaser trailer, they were basically like, oh yeah, and now at the end of Fandom, both of the first episodes of the season are live. So it was what a huge flex from the studio, from DC, from Warner Brothers. And it's been going weekly ever since. Uh, Young Justice has been great so far, really enjoying it. Um, And apparently the uh, status of season five really hangs in the balance of everyone watching it. So if you love Young Justice like I do, watch those episodes, re-binge the other seasons, go through this. We want another season. So uh, it was very cool to see that. Uh, going back to uh, TV stuff, Flash, Flash and CW, uh, we got a really great trailer for the upcoming eighth season, which is going to be kicking off with a five-part crossover called Armageddon, which brings in Despero. Really cool. Really excited to see that. Uh, We're also getting the gold boots, finally. They made a huge deal out of this. And yes, it is very cool. We've been asking for this for years, but they were really like hammering home, like, oh my god, gold boots. This is now the greatest thing ever. Um, Which, I mean, they're boots. So it never bothered me before that he didn't have red or that he didn't have gold boots. Now he has them. Awesome. Uh, but the thing that was most exciting for me was seeing the footage from Armageddon and seeing our boy Black Lightning. He's still kicking. He's still doing his superhero thing. I love I love seeing Chris Williams. Um, I love him as an actor. I love him as a person, and he's. He's just wonderful, and I'm glad to see that Black Lightning is going to be popping up in this as well. Uh, Speaking of The Flash, we also got the first footage that Ezra Miller was very quick to say isn't a trailer of The Flash. The Flash film that's going to be coming out next year uh, looked interesting. Uh, The suit looks okay um i you know what i'm gonna say it might be the unpopular opinion i prefer barry's current suit on the cw show especially now that he's got the gold boots i don't know what they're doing with this and the helmet looks weird it's weird but we did see that you know we got some footage of him and I'm assuming this world's Barry Allen's. So there's going to be two Barry Allen's for the price of one. Got our first look at Sasha Kaye as Arkali, um, as uh, Supergirl. And then we also got the first inclination that uh, Michael Keaton's Batman. He narrated the entire, like, you know, trailer footage. Um, and then we saw him in the Batcave. And they are going to be in the Batman 89 universe. So I don't know really what's going on, but I'm glad at that, to be honest. You know, I've spoken about it before in the podcast. Trailers give away too much nowadays. So I'm glad that I don't know what's going on just yet. Oh, we also got the announcement uh, when it comes to comics that there is going to be a big old comics event called Trial of the Amazons, which is going to unite all the Wonder Family characters. Uh, looks pretty great. The cover by Jen Bartel looks awesome. Uh, it's kind of a wraparound featuring everybody, so look for that next year. Uh, we also got the announcement that Superman, his new motto, uh, he's doing away with 
the American way, you know, truth, justice in the American way, which it's it hasn't been part of his character in a while. But it was cool that they made the official stamp. It's truth, justice and a better tomorrow, which I love. I absolutely love that. A lot of people weren't up in arms about this and another Superman thing, which I'll get to when we get to the comics portion. But I think it's great. I think it's great. I think it's universal. And I think it is something that has been instilled in the character for a very long time and will continue to be instilled in the character as we go forward. So truth, justice, and a better tomorrow. Give me all of that. Uh, We also got trailers for uh, Shazam! Fury of the Gods featuring our brand new villains, Helen Mirren and Lucy Liu, as well as the updated suits. Uh, Looks fine. Looks good. I still miss the old suits and how, you know, wacky they looked, but it looks good. And I loved that first film, so I will definitely be checking this out. We also got the first footage from Black Adam, which, I mean, it's been a long time coming. It looks good for what we saw. We also got the first, you know, got some teases for the Black Adam suit. Uh, The Rock looks gigantic, as he always has and always should. So it's going to be interesting to see that. We also got trailers for Gotham Knights and Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League. These were the ones I was most disappointed in. Um, I'll be honest. The trailers were good. There's nothing wrong with the trailers. Trailers showed some cool stuff, but we haven't seen gameplay from Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League yet, and that makes me worried. Uh, We also didn't get a release date for Gotham Knights, which sucks because that was supposed to come out this fall, and then they pushed it back to 2022, and now it just doesn't have a release date. So that makes me worried. We'll have to see. I'm still excited for both of these games, more so Gotham Knights, but we will just have to see where we go from there. And then the big news, of course, from DC Fandom was that Batman trailer. We got the first official trailer. The previous one was a teaser that they cobbled together with only, you know, a quarter of filming actually done. This one was the full-fledged trailer for the Batman, which is dropping in March, and... I mean, it looked great. Come on. Like, I'm not going to say bad things about it. It was amazing. I love the tone. I love the characterizations. I love the vibe of the place. Gotham City feels like its own character. The Riddler is going to be really fun, especially I think Paul Dano is going to kill it as the Riddler. And of course, our Pat, Rob Patter Batten Pat Pat. Um, he's he's looking incredible. It's just it's a great film. At least it looks like a great film. We'll have to see. Um, apparently, some early screenings, you know, pre-edits have been released and all the reactions have been positive. So, fingers crossed, very excited for this stuff. But heading out of fandom and into the wider world, uh, some TV news we're going to check out right now. So... When it comes to TV news, a lot of stuff as well. Uh, We found out that we are getting an Agatha Harkness spinoff that is in development for Disney+. Plus. Cool. I don't really know what the story for that would be, but I guess that's fine. Uh, We also got the first uh, big reveal for the Critical Role Legend of Vox Machina animated series. Uh, Revealed the intro cinematic, which looks great. Also, of course, I absolutely clocked it right away it's phil barasa doing the designs he has a very distinct style uh not bad at all but it's very distinct um they revealed the intro cinematic as well as the premiere date for the series which is going to be february 4th 2022 looking forward to that uh we got the news that why the last man has been canceled after one season on hulu they are still very hopeful that they're 
be able to pick be picked up by another network so fingers, fingers crossed for them we also found out that Pennyworth is officially going to be an HBO Max exclusive for season three and beyond, which makes me really excited because I've heard good things about Pennyworth, but I haven't been able to watch the first two seasons because it's on like flicks or something like that, I think it's called. So it's the first two seasons are going to be coming to HBO Max, and then the third season will be on HBO Max as well when it releases. Speaking of HBO Max DC series, we also got the news that Titans, Titans, and Doom Patrol have both been released renewed for season four very excited about that love 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 doom patrol um you'll hear me gush about the uh past two episodes later on in this episode we also got the news that speaking of young justice phantoms earlier it is going to have a mid-season break the first half of the season is going to wrap up in early december and the second half will be dropping in spring of 2022 which is great um I, you know, I don't like mid-season breaks, but they are giving us Justice League Phantoms or Young Justice Phantoms way ahead of when anybody thought they were going to. So totally okay with that. We also got the news that Hayden Christensen is going to be returning as Anakin Skywalker slash Darth Vader in the Ahsoka Disney Plus series. I am excited about this because Hayden Christensen love is always appreciated, but at the same time... It's not really the Anakin and Ahsoka that we fell in love with in the Clone Wars. I mean, it's, you know, I'm not going to go into it because it's, that's, you know, I don't want to come off like I'm disrespecting uh, either Hayden Christensen or Rosario Dawson because they're both phenomenal actors. But we'll just, we'll have to see. We'll see what happens there. Uh, We also got some more Cowboy Bebop Netflix love. Uh, First off, we now know that the original anime is now on Netflix. Netflix has dropped the original anime for you to watch and binge and catch up on before the live action series makes its debut. And speaking of that live action series, Cowboy Bebop dropped the Lost Session, using air quotes on Twitter, which was this amazing little like sizzle reel of what you can come to expect, hopefully, fingers crossed, when it comes to the series. And it looked great. I had a lot of fun with it. I know a lot of people are like, that ah, looks like a fan film. Good. Good. Because um, the passion in fan films is something that we don't see in regular adaptations. And it looks fun. That's the thing that I really like about it that sets it apart from other Netflix anime adaptations is that it looks fun and it looks like the actors are having fun and it looks like the editors are having fun it looks like everybody's having fun so i'm really excited to see what they do with that cannot wait to watch this show but two of the big pieces of news for me two of the big pieces of news that i was most excited about uh doctor who doctor who got some news over the past week uh season 13 which is entitled flux is uh has been announced and it is premiering this weekend as of this recording first episode is dropping it's called the halloween apocalypse and it will be dropping on halloween so take a look at that and apparently doctor who flux which is going to be jodie whittaker's final full season on the show is going to be like a five or six part uh, serialized episode hearkening back to the original uh, classic Doctor Who where they had one story stretched across several parts. This is going to be a five or six 
uh, part episode just called Doctor Who Flux. I love that idea. I love the serialization of it. And I hope that they go out swinging with this. We saw with the press release that we're going to be seeing Centaurans, Weeping Angels, as well as some new stuff that they are going to be throwing at us. So really excited about that. However, the biggest news for me out of Doctor Who was the future past flux and that is that russell t davies the savior of modern doctor who the man who brought it back into the modern lexicon is returning to helm the series after chris chibnall leaves the showrunner role following the departure of jody whittaker uh he is going to be handling the i uh, what is that the 60th anniversary the 60th anniversary jesus so it's going to be the 60th anniversary starting in 2023 and beyond so very excited about this especially to see him get like a more bigger cinematic budget with it as well um i love russell t davies as the showrunner of doctor who he's a wonderful talent I think he's going to do good things, so I'm excited about that. Heading over into comic book news now, some big swings with comic book news. First off, for those of you who are fans of Saga, Saga is returning in January of 2022. Officially, they had a big old announcement for it at the New York Comic Con recently, and really exciting stuff. Saga is one of my blind spots. It's one of the books that I haven't read, but I've heard amazing things about it. Uh, but speaking of comic series, we also got the announcement that a new She-Hulk miniseries written by Rainbow Roll with art by Roge Antonio uh, is going to be coming out. Really excited about that. I love me some She-Hulk, and this is going to be hearkening back to the Dan Slott era. So funny courtroom dramas, break the fourth wall, fun stuff all around. We also got the announcement that DC's Monkey Prince, remember him from the Asian Superhero Celebration? Uh, he's going to be getting a 12-issue series written by Gene Lun Yang with art by Bernard Chang. You know I love me some Gene Lun Yang. I'm excited to see what they do with this character. If it's anything close to the last time Gene Lun Yang got his hands in a brand new character new superman uh it's gonna be great so i'm very excited about that we also got the announcement that uh teeny howard nico leone and jody belair are going to take over catwoman starting with issue number 39 uh teeny howard writing with nico leone and jody belair on art duties very excited about this uh we also got the announcement that batman the night which is going to be a 10 issue prequel miniseries by chip zadarsky with art by carmine d gian domenico Ah, I got it. I got it that time. Um, this series is apparently going to be taking place during the time of Bruce Wayne traveling the world to train to become Batman. So I'm in it. I'm into it. Chip Zdarsky has been killing it at DC recently, and I'm more than okay with having him and Gian Domenico team up for a young Batman series, especially because we know this is synergy with the rest of the Batman hype that's going to be coming out in 2022. Uh, speaking of Batman adjacent hype, Nightwing. We got the announcement that the finger stripes are back, baby. Uh, Bruno Redondo, who has been um, the artist figurehead for the Nightwing series alongside writer Tom Taylor, announced that we are going to be shaken up Nightwing's uh, suit once again, reverting him more or less back to his pre-crisis or 
his pre-New 52, pre-Final Crisis look, where he's got the finger stripes, the look is a bit more simplified, though, instead of just the straight uh, V, blue V on the chest, they are going to be retaining the blue uh, bird emblem on here, which was originally from the animated series, as well as the blue mask. So, little changes here and there, just to kind of streamline Nightwing, which I get. I really love that Rebirth suit, but I'm totally over the moon about seeing the finger stripes again. So give me more of that. And then the two big pieces of news when it comes to comics, when it comes to DC Comics. Detective Comics number 1050 was announced and Mark Wade is making his triumphant return to DC writing some Batman and Superman. Ah, very excited about this. You know how much I love Mark Wade. You know how much I love his Superman. And with Detective Comics number 1050, Mark Wade is going to be back, 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 back again, doing some backups in the Detective Comics book entitled World's Finest, telling some Batman Superman stories. Art will be by Dan Mora, which I love. So very excited to see this. And then the news that took the world by storm, John Kent, the current Superman, son of Kal-El, is bisexual. He made, or he didn't, he's a fictional character. But Tom Taylor uh, made the announcement with the reveal of, I'm assuming, one of the panels from Superman, son of Kal-El, number five. Um... John Kent's bisexual. I think this is awesome. I think it's a great, great thing. Uh, John Kent really needed to establish himself as his own character, and I think this is definitely a step in that right direction. Plus, the Superman Son of Kal-El book has been incredible, and I love the idea that this Superman can now be somebody that anybody can aspire to you know the whole thing about superman when he was invented was that he was to represent the working class he was to represent the people who were struggling in the late 1930s and he was for the people and all these years later superman has become this ideal this icon the symbol that not a lot of people can see themselves in now. And now John Kent, as someone who is part of the LBGTQIA community, he is somebody who you can see yourself in. And there are going to be millions of kids all over the world who will now be able to see themselves in Superman. And that's... Oh, it's so cool. I love it. I absolutely love that. So anybody who's had negative views on this, you can go throw yourself off a bridge. Just my two cents. And rounding things out with film news, not as much film news as everybody else, but important stuff nonetheless. Uh, we got the, uh, I'm just going to get this out of the way. We got the Uncharted trailer. It looks bad. It just does. I'm sorry. If you liked it, great. If you have faith in this movie, great. I don't. I didn't. I, I this is going to be bad. It's going to be bad. It just is. I'm sorry. Um, it basically Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg are playing themselves uh, going through the greatest hits of all th four games. I'm not interested. I'm not just really not interested. They could have made this work and they just decided not to. Uh, thing I am excited about, though, Batgirl. We got the news that Batgirl has found its villain and it's one of our favorite actors. Say it with me now. Brendan Fraser. Brendan Fraser is going to be playing the villain in Batgirl. There have been conflicting reports whether he's going to be playing either Carmine Falcone or Firefly. 
Either one I'm okay with. Either one I'm happy with. I'm just happy to see him doing well. I'm just happy to see him doing stuff. So very excited about that. We also got a possible leak for the Spider-Verse sequel that's supposed to be dropping next year still. Uh, The rumored title is Across the Spider-Verse, which kind of goes against what I was hoping for the film, where it was going to be, you know, Spider, you know, Miles Morales having a more, you know, focused story on just him. Uh, It looks like this is going to be going across more Spider-Verse stuff. So look for Spider-Verse involvement in No Way Home. Just look for it. I'm sure it'll be there. Uh, We also got two pieces of big MCU news. First off, we got the announcement that the MCU has shifted the release dates for the remaining Phase 4 films. I'm going to run down the list here for you. Uh, First off, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness has been moved from March 25th to March to uh, May 6th of 2022. Thor Love and Thunder has been moved from May 6th, 2022 to July 8th of 2022. Black Panther Black Panther Wakanda Forever, sorry, uh, is moving from July 8th, 2022 to November 11th, 2022. The Marvels has been moved from November 11th, 2022 to February 17th of 2023. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania has been moved from February 17th, 2023 to July 28th, 2023. And two untitled projects have been removed from the slate. One has been moved from November 10th, 2023 to November 3rd, 2023. No idea what that is. No idea what the plan is. But yeah, so that's your rundown. So we're going to be getting three... uh, MCU films in 2022 we're going to be getting uh three MCU films in 2023 and we will just have to see where it goes from there and then finally in film news uh wrapping up the MCU news here Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 has found its Adam Warlock and it's not who you expected Will Poulter of Meet the Millers Maze Runner and kid who looks way too much like Sid from Story, Toy Story fame has become Adam Warlock. He's been cast as Adam Warlock and what the hell the glow up on this kid. My god he is looking fresh and I'm very excited to see him as Adam Warlock. He's in he's been incredible in everything I've ever seen him in so I'm very excited to see what he brings to Adam Warlock. Speaking of Guardians of the Galaxy a quick thing here as well. Uh, the Guardians game is out as i'm recording this i've played probably about two hours worth of it and it's dope it's really freaking good uh really enjoying it so far um the action the controls the characters the soundtrack oh my god the soundtrack everything in that game is wonderful so uh it's it's just it's amazing and it's the perfect way to finish out october so that does it for this week's news and speaking of the end of october that is going to roll us right on into the main event the main course the entree if you will which is our geektober finale featuring Nerd Sync's own Scott Nicewander as we dive into Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost. With this little cobweb potion You'll fall into dark devotion If you ever lose affection I can change your whole direction I'm a hex girl 
Ladies and gentlemen, we've made it, gang. We are here in part four of Geektober, where every single week, if you haven't been following along, we've been tackling a different corner of the spooktastic Halloween season. Uh, we've tackled video games, we've tackled comic books, we've tackled films, and now we are diving into something that has a very special place in my heart, which is animation. Specifically, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite Halloween related media my love for this film is deep set I've had it for a very long time we're talking Scooby-Doo and of course the only person that I felt comfortable the only person that I could entrust talking about Scooby-Doo with is the Scoob master himself the man who has lit the torch and kept it going for Scooby-Doo media all across YouTube. Nerd Sync's own Scott Nicewander. Scott, how are you? I am doing great. What an introduction. That was so good. <laughs> I feel like if there was such a thing as a Scooby-Doo scholar, I feel like you have presented me with with a degree of some kind just now. I think you've got the pedigree. I think you've you've uh, taken the classes. You've even taken a couple extra electives. I think you'd you'd earn that. Mm -hmm. I'm just scared of what I'm going to do with my life after I graduate with this degree. I don't think I'll be able to get a job. So I'm just like piling on more classes. Let me learn everything. I'll be super equipped with knowledge that may or may not be helpful in, in the, the grand scheme of life. But I'm happy to be here. This is super fun. I love talking about Scooby-Doo. It's one of my favorite things. I can't believe that you know, I've loved this franchise my entire life and I've been able to talk about it so much and have people who want uh, me to talk about it. It's just so, <laughs> it's so funny. So yeah, I'm, I'm so happy to be here and so excited to talk about this movie. Hell yeah. Like it, and what's great about this and this topic is that I like to come to any topic that I bring to the podcast with a certain amount of knowledge, but mostly passion for it and you have one of the most passionate um fandoms for this for this whole branch of Hanna-Barbera media um Scott genuinely has some of the most I would say well put together videos out of anybody on YouTube and his Scooby-Doo videos are some of my favorites on your channel um it's I still go back and rewatch the Scooby-Doo, a franchise at war with itself every so often. Anytime I'm like, how, how do you go through a history of something in pop culture and make it exciting for people to actually listen to and follow along with? And I knew that when I wanted to have Scooby-Doo on this, as part of this event, you were the guy to come to. Thank you so much. I love that's one of my favorite videos I've ever made. I had been writing it since like 2017 and I finally was able to do it in 2020 of all years. And uh, <laughs> I'm so I'm so glad it resonated with a lot of people. And, and it, I think that was the video that really uh, shot me up as, uh, you know, I've been making comic book videos and superhero videos for almost a decade now and, and being able to make a handful of Scooby-Doo videos that people <laughs> really resonate with. I am now seen as a Scoob-tuber, if there is such a, a thing. Scoob-tuber, yes. So I'm, I'm happy to claim that title. I love this franchise and I love, I love me a good Scoob. Hell yeah. Say? 
So specifically this episode, we're going to be tackling Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost. Now, before we get into the film itself, we want to give you kind of a backstory on the project, on the production of this. So Scott, if anyone is unsure <laughs> of what Scooby-Doo is, can you give us a basic premise on Scooby-Doo in, let's, let's put a restraint on here, in 30 seconds or less? Okay, yeah. So the basic premise of Scooby-Doo is you have this group of kids who go around solving mysteries, and most of the time the mysteries are people in costumes who are just trying to like get some treasure or something and scare people away from a site. Sometimes the monsters are actually real, as in like 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo and whatnot. Sometimes they're just antics. There's a weird time in the 70s where it was just like a, like a lot of weird antics, but the basic general formula of Scooby-Doo teenagers solve mysteries with their talking dog what's not to love absolutely i I don't think there's a better summarization of scooby-doo anywhere and i do i do have to mention i never noticed this when i was originally watching scooby-doo as a kid but it was specifically one of your videos where you pointed out how fred says treasure (laughs) and now i can't say treasure without like adding that it's 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 the best because the voice actor for Fred, Frank Welker, is the only one of the original voice actors who is still doing that character. And so even from the old days to the modern days, anytime <laughs> set Fred says treasure, it's always the mummy's treasure. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta look for some buried treasure. Mm-hmm. It is amazing so before we get into the rest of this i've been asking this to all my guests so far and i want to ask you as well what is your favorite part of the halloween season and do you have any traditions for halloween oh that's a good question i i think i'm in the process of making some traditions um Love it. i don't know i don't know what what they are yet i like just watching new pieces of media that i've never seen before i just watched the movie Coraline for the first time a couple oh, of days ago dope. what a good movie so, so good. good and there's a lot of like halloween and like horror adjacent stuff that i've just not seen before and so i think halloween gives me an excuse to dive into something that's new to me and uh, while also giving me an excuse to, I, I feel like Scooby-Doo is such a classic Halloween thing for me, and to the point where I think even HBO this year is like, Scoobtober on HBO Max. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm down HBO, let's do it. So I, I think it gives me an excuse to revisit a lot of Scooby-Doo stuff. Uh, I think Zombie Island, a lot of these 90s uh, uh, Scooby-Doo stuff is so perfect for this time because they're just drawn so eerily and spookily and and they're just the most um, aesthetically horror of all the Scooby stuff, which I appreciate. Uh, But yeah, and then I just love diving into something new and uh, new and fresh and just making my my juices go like, oh, I can't believe I've not seen this before. So, yeah. (laughs) Fantastic, man. Well, and it's it's kind of funny that Scooby-Doo has become kind of a fixture in like the spooky season because for a while Scooby-Doo kind of found itself on the decline, you know, after 
having some really like i would i would say widespread success for most of its initial cartoon run throughout the 80s or the 70s and 80s as we started to head into the late 80s and the early 90s the show started to pop off you know we were getting diminishing returns for you know every single new iteration and it kind of wrapped up with a pup named Scooby-Doo, which is one of my favorites. It's one of my oh, favorites out of all of them. Yeah. Um, but can you speak a little bit to the decline of Scooby-Doo and kind of where it was at heading into the 90s? Yeah, so I think most people are probably familiar with the original cartoon, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Introduced all, you know, the, the tropes that we know and love. The whole gang is here. As we continue the franchise deeper into the 70s and even 80s, they stripped away some characters fred and velma were missing for the most part from the series which is so strange to think about because they are like especially velma is such a, a huge staple of yeah. i think of the scooby-doo franchise totally gone her and fred go away we introduced scrappy obviously people have opinions about scrappy scooby-doo started to become less about kids solving mysteries and more about cartoon characters having wacky hijinks. I think 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo is, is a pretty good example of this. Uh, but even still, there were just things like the this Scrappy and Scooby-Doo show, or uh, there was like a, a Archie, or not Archie, Richie Rich and Scooby-Doo sort of uh, special, like, you know, half-hour cartoon. And, like, they stopped being about solving mysteries and they were just more about like what's a wacky thing that the gang could get into and it's good stuff it's fine stuff but i think the core of scooby-doo is that mystery solving and they started getting away from that until it was sort of revitalized again with a pup named scooby-doo who that show finally brought back fred and velma which was uh, very uh <laughs> lovely to see and it really instilled the core formula of what Scooby-Doo should be. Even in the old days of Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? They would have these mysteries, but it would sometimes it would be impossible to solve them because the culprit would be someone, a character that you had not met yet, but the audience treated it as if you had met that character before. Like, oh yeah, this person who escaped jail recently. I'm like, Velma, I don't know that. I don't live in your world. I don't know who escaped jail recently. But with a pup named Scooby-Doo, they really tuned it in. I mean, this was during the era when everything was being babyfied, things like Tiny Toons and, uh, like, there was a Flintstones one where they were, like, all babies and uh, so many things. Um, and so a pup named Scooby-Doo did that. These were kid versions of these characters. And because of that, they really tuned it in for a kid audience more so than anything else. And they made the clues very obvious. They always gave you like three suspects of who it could be. It was incredibly formulaic. And I'd say that endearingly. I think it really mastered the Scooby-Doo formula so that later iterations of the cartoons and of the franchise could take that formula and uh, either completely roll with it unironically or subvert it in ways that make the franchise really interesting. And I think that's sort of what started to happen happen after a pup named Scooby-Doo is people were taking that formula and subverting it in ways uh, that really take the franchise into new areas. Yeah, and pup named Scooby-Doo also introduced the second best character in Scooby-Doo history, Red Herring. 
Absolutely. Red herring rules. Red, red herring rules. The first episode, they treat him as an actual suspect, which is really interesting. And then every episode after that, it's Fred being like, I bet it was red herring behind this. And it never was, except for the one time where it was uh, red herring. And Fred made a bet that he wouldn't accuse red herring. So the one time it was him, Fred couldn't get it right. Spoilers, I guess, for a pop Thanksgiving. But incredible. Who's your favorite character then? If red herring is the is the second, who's your favorite? I mean, we're going to talk about them, I think, okay. in a little bit. All right. But scrappy it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, Red Herring was always fun. And I think my favorite moment of Red Herrings was the moment when I don't remember which episode it is, but Fred is like, guys, I know who it is. And then a phone rings next to him and yeah. he picks it up and it's red. And he's like, Hey, I have no basis for I'm paraphrasing. Obviously yeah. I have no basis for this, but I'm pretty sure you just accused me of something. I I'm on vacation with my parents. I have no idea what's going on. And he just hangs up. And just, yeah. It's so good. It's so good. The, more than anything, a pup named Scooby-Doo really leaned into the cartoon comedic aspect of it. Yes. Like it felt like it was the animation style was so wacky and weird and uh, full of life. And making jokes like that is just you don't see that anywhere else in the Scooby-Doo franchise, I feel. And it's for that reason, it has just a very special place in my heart. Same. And unfortunately, once A Pup Named Scooby-Doo wrapped up, there wasn't really any plans for Scoob going forward. Um, in 1991, Hanna-Barbera was purchased by Turner Broadcast System, the big corporate conglomerate that they were. Um, and what this meant was not just that, you know, Hanna-Barbera was part of this gigantic media empire. It meant that Scooby-Doo got a second chance on the brand new, newly minted Cartoon Network. Mm. Now, Cartoon Network was a huge fixture of my life growing up. I'm sure it was for you as well, Scott. Absolutely. Um, and this was kind of the place to watch all of those classic cartoons before they kind of got set to the side on Boomerang. And Cartoon Network was where, you know, a lot of people were introduced to Scooby-Doo, myself included. And having this new audience getting reruns from all the classic Scooby-Doo properties really breathed new life into the franchise and gave them a little bit more of a pop when it came to the, uh, the staying power of that franchise as well. Now in 1996, Turner merged with Time Warner, an even bigger corporate conglomerate. Yep. <laughs> and this meant that they were now under the umbrella of the Warner Brothers. And Time Warner wanted new Scooby-Doo. They were like, we're tired of the reruns. We want new yeah. stuff. So they tasked a very small team to develop a new project that they wanted to be a direct-to-TV uh, feature film. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't the first time that Scooby-Doo had been adapted into film. Now, I'm sure you have a favorite as well, but they had been doing this throughout the decades before this happened. My personal favorite is Scooby-Doo and the Ghoul School. Absolutely. I think it's so good. 
It's so good. Um, it's very fun. I mean, yeah, you've got that. You've got the Boo Brothers, the, I believe, the Reluctant Werewolf. Like, there's just so that's many. That's the Wacky great... Racers one, right? Uh, I can't... Oh, boy, they're all blending together in my head. But <laughs> uh, see, now you got to strip my, my degree away from me. I don't know. But uh, no, there, there were just so many at the time that were that were very, uh, very funny and very fun. I have a friend who's like favorite Scooby-Doo anything is the Boo Brothers. And so that's <laughs> wild to me that that's your favorite. But yeah, I mean, they're all fun out of all of them why i know but yeah so essentially this new team set out to bring scooby-doo to a modern audience a brand new scooby tale re uh reuniting the gang for a brand new adventure and what was great about this is that this initial outing gave the team behind the film complete creative freedom you know production and warner saw the film as kind of a one-off experiment to see if people would bite to see if there was any interest in it and the film which had a screenplay by glenn leopold doug lawrence and william davies and the story by davis doy which kind of comprised that core team really wanted to make this stand out from previous scooby outings and to do so they recruited japanese animation studio mook now mook has worked on a ton of things they have a lot of um goodwill in the japanese animation community and bringing them here was a weird choice i would say <laughs> you know this wasn't at the time when it was you know japanese animation was kind of running the world when it came to pop culture this was a risk and i think with warner brothers basically saying like hey you know go wild here's our checkbook like the team decided yeah we're gonna swing for the fences on this and on top of that they also decided why not get some new music in here specifically oh, for yeah for this first outing, they brought in Third Eye Blind to do Absolutely. the Scooby-Doo theme. And they also had music from the ska band Sky Cycle. Mm -hmm. Now, they ended up pulling everything together, got a great cast, and Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island released on September 22nd of 1998 to critical acclaim and newfound popularity for the brand. And what was cool about this, especially in like the the uh the advertising was that the whole tagline was this time the monsters are real that's right Every, all the commercials all the trailers that's exactly what what the gimmick was and it's not the first time that in the scooby-doo franchise where the monsters were real right you know 13 ghosts of scooby-doo as we talk about ghoul school boo brothers even some episodes of things like pup named scooby-doo had real ghosts in them uh this was it scooby-doo has sort of a history of every other installment so to speak is like real monsters fake monsters real monsters fake monsters and so the fact that they're like this time they're real it's like <laughs> no th we've had this before but like <laughs> it's still a cool idea it's still they really embraced it and embraced that horror aspect of it whereas previous installments that had real monsters were still very comedic and this movie zombie island it still has very comedic moments um there's lots of visual gags that i think are very fun but i think it was the first time that they really allowed the monsters in scooby-doo to not only be real but be terrifying and they yeah. were and i was scared of this movie as a kid for for a lot of that and, and for the animation which is beautiful and gorgeous monsters in it that are just uh you know rendered incredibly creepy and eerie uh through the animators and it's it's such a beautiful film uh and 
it just it, it sets it apart uh, in the entirety of the Scooby Doo franchise for me. Absolutely, and it was something that if you kind of set it up next to previous Scooby franchise media, night and day, and yeah. not just because the entire like crux of the film takes place at like midnight like it was really interesting the approach they took to this because like you said they had had you know monsters and real creatures beforehand but they were never scary they were never really a terrifying prospect which isn't to say that scooby-doo in its classic form wasn't scary there were a couple episodes that i distinctly remember watching as a kid from the classic cartoons where i was oh, like yeah. i cannot watch this again can, can i ask what if you remember a monster from the classic one that was scary because i have one that is to, in my opinion the scariest one and i want to see if people agree with me i'm interested in hearing yours so okay. lay it on me the scariest one to me is the space kook um which is this <laughs> alien spaceman who just has uh like a skull for a head inside of a like a dome-shaped my, almost mysterio-esque uh you know helmet and just has the creepiest laugh on yeah, the planet it's terrifying like, it's like oh who Ugh. thought of that it's terrifying i don't like it no thank you <laughs> Yeah, I I absolutely agree. I think for me, the one that always kind of freaked me out, I can't remember his name, but it was this, he had this like green face and he had this like trench coat and a hat and he was like, I don't know if they called him the creeper or whatever, but yeah. I really like, I didn't like that. Like no. that's <laughs> like, d like animation and like really exaggerated features always kind of freaked me out as a kid um mm -hmm. you're familiar are you familiar with courage the cowardly dog absolutely yeah had a Mu scooby-doo crossover i think last year earlier this year i can't remember yeah yeah muriel's brother still terrifies me to this day yes. I know to exactly this day. who you're talking about. I can't go back. I still, as an adult, I am pushing 30 here. I cannot go back and watch the episode that he's in because my, and I'm sure it's not even as bad as I'm making it out to be, but like my imagination is just stretched and contorted like yeah. his presentation. So animation can be scary, but this was kind of the first time that they were open about, hey, show this to your kids and see what happens folks like yeah this will be a fun time yeah and i also did i wanted to circle back a little bit you're talking about the cast i i some fun facts about the cast of of these uh sorts of uh, these 90s sort of uh, yeah. reboots revitalizations of scooby-doo uh as i was talking about frank welker is, is still the original voice he was the original voice of fred still doing the voice of fred today the only thing i don't think he did the voice of fred in was a pup named scooby-doo because they were children that would um, be incredible if he did amazing <laughs> just like a, an eight-year-old fred sounding like adult frank welker um they did get casey Kasem for for shaggy in that show so that's true not unheard of but flip-flopped uh here in these these cartoons because uh frank wilker almost didn't get the the part of fred back because, really uh original i believe that original uh episodes of 
Scooby-Doo when they were being aired uh, were sped up for time very briefly. And so it made Fred's voice sound a little higher. So when he was auditioning for the role of Fred again for these more modern cartoons, they were like, your voice changed. It's a lot deeper. And he goes, no, my voice isn't deeper. They played the tapes (laughs) back faster. And sure enough, they found the, the original... Uh, tapes i guess of the cartoons and he was proven right and they're like all right fine you can be it and he's the only original returning cast member i believe for these uh cartoons because even casey Kasem didn't come back for these uh because he had quit the role of shaggy briefly because he was like a vegetarian or vegan just didn't eat meat and they had the character of shaggy do like a burger king commercial and he was really upset about that and so he stopped being the voice of shaggy for uh, until what's new Scooby-Doo when they very firmly made Shaggy a vegetarian. So fun facts about casting and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of, that's, that's wild. I mean, just having, I mean, Casey Kasem standing up for his beliefs. I, you gotta appreciate that. What a, what a fun dude. I mean, I think it makes the character of Shaggy more interesting. Absolutely. Um, it does. They do. They absolutely do not follow that in these movies. Like Shaggy and Scooby are eating <laughs> not even like close. E- in Witch's Ghost. They're like eating like whole turkeys and chickens at the diner. Hot roast, like, the whole yeah, deal. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, once the film came out and it was a success, made money, people loved it. It even got like some really favorable reviews from like hoity-toity uh, film reviewers and critics. Warner Brothers was like, okay, cool do it again which brought us the real challenge the follow-up to a classic and after the success of zombie island warner brothers decided hey you know we gave you a lot of free reign with this you had a lot of fun times daddy's home and i'm gonna like make sure that this goes according to what we want and warner brothers and decided that this with the production of this film there was going to be less creative freedom and more oversight so they were going to have a hands-on approach with this which came in a couple different forms yeah i mean you gotta love that though they were like all right this was a massive success and we hardly did anything so i think in order to repeat it we need to get our hands all in there (laughs) the logic i love it i mean it it makes sense for corporate logic sure does but yeah so one of the big mandates for the new direction for this was that this film was going to tone down on the scary content because warner brothers looked at that and said zombie island was too scary Mm -mm, so we need you to scale that back and Mm -hmm. which i think is ridiculous personally that's like the, the i mean we talked about it already that's like one of the main points of zombie island is the fact that the the monsters were real and terrifying that was the thing that made it different and so yeah them reeling that in a little bit is just like i don't know it's you're taking away part like one of the most interesting parts of of that movie agreed and so the other big um the other big influence they had was they wanted their guys to write the script. So Warner Brothers brought in Rick Cop and David A. Goodman, a Goodman and a Cop, to write this script because they were their guys and they had written for live action properties. And Warner Brothers, like many studios in the years since, decided, oh, you know, live action and animation are like the same thing. Just 
mix and match, just copy and paste. And so they brought them in. They did a treatment for the script, which ended up being a completely different ending. The mystery with the witch was going to end up being a hoax with the entire town in on the... um, in on the illusion of the witch to try and scam money out of tourists mm-hmm. and there was no real supernatural elements no. i mean and that does happen in the yeah. movie but that is not all that happens in the movie <laughs> so how and, do we get that and that's honestly that's thanks to um glenn leopold one of the original writers part of the original creative team who at the final hour decided <laughs> nah screw this i'm gonna rewrite the entire th- final third of this film yes. and he went and it, it feels like a heist movie he's like i'm gonna slip this right in underneath <laughs> underneath business daddy's nose and we're going to make the film that we want to make which resulted in the film that we got scooby-doo and the witch's ghost released on october 5th 1999 and here we are the main event scooby-doo and the witch's ghost scott do you remember the first time you watched this film Oh man, so we were talking before about how Cartoon Network was the place for these, for like reruns of Scooby-Doo, and then and, and obviously that's where these cartoons aired. I don't know if I watched these when they originally aired, but my memory of Scooby-Doo media is when I was sick from and stayed home from school, mm. uh, I would just turn on Cartoon Network and they would constantly play Scooby-Doo stuff. And that's how I watched so much of this. So I'm sure in somewhere in there, like I can picture my bedroom that I was in. I can picture the TV I watched it on. Somewhere in there, sick, you know, home from school, watching Scooby-Doo, I definitely watched uh, these. I don't remember the exact first time, but it was definitely with those set of circumstances of just like, I don't feel good. I don't want to go to school. I want to watch (laughs) Scooby-Doo. Relatable. Relatable AF. Uh, I, you you know, I have a a really um, interesting relationship with this movie. Uh, I talked about it in the episode with Matt. but my uh, my upbringing was Wiccan. My mom was uh, Wicca. Uh, we were recovering Catholics, as my dad liked to call us. <laughs> and mom kind of dove headfirst into you know Wicca and everything about that you know that belief system. And it was cool, man. Like getting to have traditions. Halloween was always a special time for us. And this was my first Scooby Doo movie. I saw this before Zombie Island, even though I distinctly remember seeing that the monsters are real commercial literally (laughs) everywhere as a kid. And this one was really special to me because this kind of, you know, it was something that me and my mom and my aunts could all kind of watch. And it was something that kind of like brought us together. And the film I remember as a kid watching it on uh, VHS. We rented it from a blockbuster video. I'm aging myself as I go here. Um, but I just remember loving it. I remember loving it. I remember, oh man, like this must have been what they were talking about with the monsters being real. Mm-hmm. And I just, I remember loving it and I've loved it ever since. And rewatching it for this episode brought all of those feelings back because it is just a nice bite of nostalgia for Absolutely. me. Absolutely. And so 
getting into Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost, we'll do a brief little plot summary here. Essentially, the uh, film opens up with a classic Scooby caper. This time, we've got a robbery in a museum. Sh- uh, shenanigans and hijinks ensue and for me i had completely forgotten a scooby-doo theme song by billy ray cyrus of all people yeah (laughs) wild when that kicked on (laughs) you could it is and it's even like if you don't know who billy ray cyrus is you know his sound you know his twang and when that kicked on i was like wait a minute what is this and it's such a weird choice you go from third eye blind to billy ray cyrus a very strange jump if i might say so it feels weird because at first you're like okay maybe it's supposed to fit the tone of the movie but they're not going anywhere the movie's not like in like the country or like the outback (laughs) or anything i don't quite get it Yeah, and so after the opening sequence, our gang runs into a Mr. Ben Ravencroft, played by... What a great, like, (laughs) Salem author witchcraft name. immediately know what this guy's whole deal is. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's very H.P. Lovecraft. It's like, I get exactly what you're about. I have a pretty good idea what your deal is. Mm -hmm. Um, And he is played by the inimitable Tim Curry unbelievable casting so good and it's what's great about it i think is that you can't tell that it's tim curry until like he gets to that ridiculous point where he's summoning the witch yes i was also thinking that i the whole movie i was like it feels weird i don't know i was like tim curry's not really putting all of his tim curryness into this role right now it's (laughs) i just i remember it being a lot more I don't know, just like really like his presence. I remember the presence being a lot stronger and the whole, you know, like first two thirds of the movie, it's him as as Ben Ravencroft, just being a normal person. And then at the at the twist at the end, when he is summoning all this magic power, he, he you know, explains that he is a warlock and that, you know, he's going to do these rituals that's when Tim Curry really puts it on and you're like, all right, he showed up. He showed up on this day. (laughs) Absolutely. Now we're finally going to get command and conquer Tim Curry. Spice. (laughs) Like (laughs) that's exactly right. Like I, that is really the moment where he goes full Tim Curry. And I think that's kind of cool having a reserve Tim Curry where he's really interested in getting you on board with this character because he's this guy who is descended from at least what he tells us a wicca who was falsely killed in you know in the um i don't know if it, it is the same witch trials i believe it's but... it's not the salem witch trials but it velma makes a reference to like mm. it's similar to the salem witch trials uh because i can't remember it was the the city is called oak haven yeah um and i don't know where specifically that's located they may have said in the movie i think um, they said it's in massachusetts it, but did they? Okay, yeah. okay i know velma just velma had said it was like it was like the Salem witch trial. So I'm sure I mean... right up the street from Salem is Oak Haven, obviously. obviously. And they, were just, they were just dealing with the exact same stuff. <laughs> and and I'm sure Warner Brothers was like, oh, we don't want people Googling Salem witch trials after watching <laughs> this fun right. Scooby-Doo romp. 
<laughs> but yeah, probably it's, right. And so he goes for the harvest festival every year to try and clear his ancestor's name and find her journal. And so he invites the Scooby gang along with and they head over to Oak Haven, which is this just beautiful little autumny town. I love everything about I'm a huge fan of just the autumn aesthetic. Oh, and of course. It is in full bloom here. It's got like the really like um, autumn country style, like Oktoberfest mm -hmm. vibes. Everybody's just happy to be there and everybody's like, ah, come on over. And the thing about it, it's very commercial. And yeah. and it Ben is. is just like, what is going on here? Yeah, it's it's the for this season specifically, it's very new. Normally, it's quiet. This year, it's you know, as you were saying, very commercial. They've got T-shirts of like the witch's ghost. <laughs> They've got you know a band in town who's gonna play something special. Oh. I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, and so it just feels to Ben like, wow, this is not how I remember it being. Um, this is a lot louder than yeah. this quiet town is norm than, than it normally is. And so the the hunt begins to try and find the um, the journal while they're also dealing with all the hijinks and the uh, idea of this witch's ghost, which eventually is revealed to be a hoax completely fabricated by the town to drum up mm -hmm. tourism which sounds very familiar to what the original screenwriters wanted to put on here mm -hmm. but what mm -hmm. ends up happening is that the mayor and the main um guy organizing all this got the idea to do this because they accidentally dug up ben ravencroft's ancestor's body and by revisiting the grave site, they find the book. We find out that Ben Ravencroft is actually a warlock. And mm. through all of this, we meet my favorite characters in the entire Scooby franchise. Scrappy the Hex Girls. Back. Oh, yes, the Hex Girls. No, J J Scott. <laughs> <laughs> The Hex Girls! The, the Hex, Hex Girls! Girls! Unbelievable! What an incredible entrance. Uh, what fantastic characters. This idea that at the time, they're a small town band who are in like from oak haven um and are just starting to become big it's so interesting to go back to this movie now especially because the hex girls have been in so much scooby-doo media since now yeah or s since this movie that to, to see them kind of start out as like yeah we're just from this little town and we're we're going places and this is my dad like it's, it's so <laughs> it's so interesting because later on in this whole franchise they become like mega stars, mega stars. Like they are huge everyone knows them everyone knows their songs and to see the gang pull up and be like it's the hex girls and like who are the hex girls and it's like i don't know but it's on that sign over there like for, <laughs> for, for, for people to be oblivious about the hex girls in hindsight like with all this knowledge that we have about them it's just it's so interesting it's so fun yeah totally agree and it's so it's very cool to see like you absolutely get it like watching it in retrospect why these characters resonated so well because they're just cool thorn dusk and luna are just the coolest cats in the town and they are eco goths as they say they are mindful of the planet and wanting to pursue wicca though 
for uh, Dusk and Luna, it's performative. For Thorn, she is 116th Wicca. She is very adamant about how she was only 116th. Yep. <laughs> it comes up a few times. <laughs> and just for those keeping score at home, this is a tool that we'll use for later. So keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Back um, of your brain back of the brain and so what i love is that they do have this focus on the film on wicca and witchcraft and the idea and the separation of the two and what i also really dig about this is that this film is anime as hell like there are so many anime influences i mean look no further than the hex girls themselves but also like some of the animation choices when they get to the scene where ben is like summoning the witch it is so like you could absolutely set an anime song to this absolutely the the energy radiating off of him shooting outward from the sky and just yeah that everything the camera angles like the sweeping and the 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 facial anime it's just it's so uh it's so energetic in a way it's for sure it's it's just it's beautiful it's amazing i love it yeah and when he does finally get the book and he starts summoning tim curry gets wild like he starts doing spider-man flips and he's like where did this come from could you do this the whole time like he is terrifying yeah absolutely this is when the character of ben ravencroft like comes alive in a sense because you can tell now with 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 seeing this seeing him summon all these magical powers like you can tell he has been hiding a big portion of himself from the entire world he is a renowned author i don't know if we even said that i don't think we did he is a renowned author of horror stories and people you know his name is in the public people know who he is more than they know who the hex girls are <laughs> and and the fact that he's been hiding this this part of his life for so long you can tell he's he's just like relishing in the fact that he can finally let it out he's like yes i am a warlock i am powerful let's do this and so he summons up the witch's ghost and she immediately turns on him. She's like, <laughs> I I just, I love its classic cartoon hubris. Like, I am going to summon this powerful entity and it will, of course, bend the knee to me and it will serve me for freeing it. And it's not what happens. The ghost straight up, like, absolutely shames him for, like, you little, like, insignificant thing like i am not gonna do this and ben ravencroft has a change of heart because this plan is not going according to what he was uh planning on and he tries to seal her back up though he is unable to because he does not have the goodness juice inside of him a a twist worthy of a ben ravencroft book if i do say so myself (laughs) Look for that in uh, Ben Ravencroft's third book. We won't spoil the title here for you. But they end up getting a hold of the book once again. And Velma correctly realizes we need Thorn. Thorn has Wiccan blood in her. And I love the idea of Thorn as a hidden protagonist. I love just the hidden protagonist like trope in general but thorn all of a sudden becoming she's the key to stopping this is super cool oh yeah it it finally like it it takes these characters 
And because originally throughout the movie, the hex girls were seen almost as like a potential like culprit, like that yeah. maybe they might be behind this because the fake witch's ghost was shooting, you know, fire and their stage performance has these pyrotechnics. And so it's like maybe the hex girls are behind it because we know that you probably need multiple people to be you know, to, to run this stunt on these, you know, have someone on wires and have someone in the, you know, costume manager. It's like, you need multiple people and there's three of them. So I bet they are actually the ones behind it. Turns out, no, you know, as we said, it was the whole town behind it, but then they don't just drop these characters of the hex girls. They say, actually Thorn, you're super important. Still, we thought you might've been the person behind all of this, but actually you're the person who can potentially stop all of this. And I think that's so, that's such good writing. It is, it's really good writing. And having this character, like you said, in plain sight, when we first meet them shagging and Scooby after completely demolishing this man's restaurant business, like <laughs> are going down an alleyway and they just see like the figures of the hex girls and they're initially like oh my god they're vampires we gotta run mm -hmm. and like they've got some sketchy stuff they're talking about like doing uh doing rituals and they also have like the coolest little like handshake thing oh, it's the best. <laughs> uh <laughs> where they're um where they are set up, like you said, as uh, as potential antagonists and for Thorne to be like the chosen one, essentially, yeah. and how she is the key to stopping the ghost and sealing her back up. Super cool. Awesome. So she does the incantation. The ghost is sealed back up, but not before dragging Ben in with her. A fitting end for poor Ben Ravencroft. And then immediately a, a flaming tree branch <laughs> falls on it and burns the book. I felt bad. I'm like, yeah, Ben sucked. He like caused all this to happen, but now he gets sucked into this book and the book immediately burns to ashes so that nobody can summon him back even. It's like he was not doing anyone any harm without the book right like... i disagree okay because this right. this man broke poor velma's heart and that's another thing that i love about this film is that there's a great focus on character relationships Velma is smitten with Mr. Ben Ravencroft oh, and yeah. there are different points throughout the film where it's like it's almost teased that it's mutual they had that really cute moment where they both drop their glasses <laughs> and they put on each other's glasses and they it's the it's first adorable. it is and it's the first time in the Scooby-Doo franchise at least that I can think of that Velma was actually given a love interest and oh, yeah from here we would see her get other love interests throughout and we would also you know play around with her concept of sexuality and all this stuff velma had an awakening throughout like yeah throughout the scooby-doo franchise and it kind of started here with her getting that development and getting that focus instead of being just like the brain or the person who's logical yeah, and yeah, yeah for sure yeah and they also go ahead no, and I was just going to say, yeah, it again, because Velma had been missing from the Scooby-Doo franchise for a really long time, came back in a pup new Scooby-Doo as a, a very different version of how we've ever seen Velma, where she's very quiet. She doesn't speak at all unless she finds a clue. Uh, for the most part in, in the pup named Scooby-Doo, like even the first episodes really hammer home that like if Velma speaks, it's because it's important. 
And that's a version of Velma that we've not seen since then. And so you, you sort of sense that throughout the entirety of the franchise of Scooby-Doo, they're just trying to figure out how do we use Velma? <laughs> and it's through these movies. It's through Zombie Island and, and Witch's Ghost and, and continuing forward that I feel like the franchise finally learned how to use this character and to make it so that she is three-dimensional uh, as we continue on with the franchise, which is, again, so wild because I can't think... If you told me that they were going to do a Scooby-Doo show without Velma, I'd be like, are you kidding me? How? <laughs> How would that work? But they did it. They did it a lot. And now, of course, thanks to these movies, uh, Velma is once again a staple of the gang, as she should be. Absolutely agree. Like, Velma is just as iconic at least in my book, as Shaggy and Scooby, and also missing from some of those uh, some of those incarnations is Fred. And Fred gets a lot of development here, specifically with him and Daphne. Um, it's always been kind of a will they, won't they situation with Fred and Daphne. I think one of my favorite jokes in the entire franchise is in uh, Cyber Chase when they're all like, he's like, we got to split up gang and Scooby and Shaggy just start walking away. And he's like, what? I didn't say how we were going to split up. And Shaggy goes, do we split up any other way? <laughs> yeah, and, of course we're going to do it the, the same way we always do it, bud. Yeah. And they even like Daphne brings it up when they do eventually split up. She's like, so why do you always have us split up together? Mm. And it plays with that will they, won't they? And there's a great moment because Fred is super into goth girls, apparently, as well. Because he is immediately smitten by Thorn. Like, yeah. he is just... My favorite part about, like, the the intro to them with their first, like, rehearsal that's absolutely shot like a music video, which is something... I absolutely yes. love. It makes no sense because they're they, like they play the whole song. I was like, surely they will stop after like the first <laughs> chorus. They play the whole song. And not only that, they like there are points where like it's obviously like it's the camera and they like look over their shoulder to like look at the camera. And I'm like, there's no one back there. Like, well, who are you looking at? So wild. And it is set up like a music video and I love it. But one of my favorite parts of that is it just keeps cutting to Fred and he just has this mystified, like wide eyed look <laughs> as he's just like, he is under a trance. He is under a spell. Oh yeah. Um, well, that's their whole thing, right? They got it. They're going to put gonna... a spell on you. Yeah. yeah it's, and there's a great moment. I, I want to grab my phone because I have, I have it saved on my, uh, oh, on my phone here. There's this moment where they're like looking for clues Fred and Daphne are and I'm going to send this to you real quick. Um, Fred's just like, oh man, you know, there might be a, uh, there might be, you know, we're, we're going to have to follow up on these hex girls. And Daphne like looks at him and she's like, are you sure you're just not stuck on Thorn, Freddy? And the look that Fred gives yeah, is incredible. <laughs> just absolutely done with I it. I cannot believe this is meme worthy for sure. <laughs> <laughs> this is I. We have visual aids on this podcast. I when this episode is out, we got to just tweet out this image. This Absolutely, is, we will. Yeah, I just I have never like laughed so hard at something that Fred has done than seeing him just absolutely over Daphne's shit. 
Like, <laughs> it's so good. Um, but yeah, it develops that. It develops interpersonal yeah. relationships, which I love. And you don't always get with Scooby stories. Yeah, yeah. And and again, this is a thing that continues on, as you were saying, throughout the, the rest of the franchise. The, uh, the other... You know, even Zombie Island teased it a little bit with with Daphne and uh, yeah, with Daphne being a little jealous of Fred, right? Uh, uh, talking to someone else. Uh, the live action movies really develop their relationship. Um, I've pointed this out before, but the novelization of Scooby Doo Two Monsters Unleashed, <laughs> a thing that only I have read, um, starts out with I, I'll take my degree back. Um, starts out very specifically saying that Fred and Daphne are engaged, which is not a thing they talk about in the movie, but they are definitely dating in the movie. They, have, they kiss at the end of the first one. You get it. They set up a real-life romance between Freddie Prince Jr. and uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar. So it's just it's it's very, very funny how that all works out. And then, of course, later on, Interpretations, Mystery Incorporated has them be in a very explicitly in a, in a relationship. And it just continues on from there. And it, a lot of that stuff starts here in these in these movies. For sure. And so once the once the film came out, once the film was not as big of a success as Zombie Island, but most certainly a success, it had some lasting um, legacy. Success of this film led to very little oversight to none at all for the next film, which was Scooby-Doo and the Alien Invaders, mm -hmm. which is also an absolute treat. It really, it's it's wild. It It's, I would say, the wildest of the four movies, give or take a cyber chase or two. It's, but... it's out there. Um, the, these other two movies deal with, like, supernatural elements, and mm -hmm. Alien Invaders was very... Uh, uh sci-fi sci yeah. yeah which is which is extremely different for scooby-doo and the same thing with cyber chase it ended up yeah. going into like diving into computers and like all this st wacky stuff that could happen from there mm -hmm. um but this film as well as zombie island and really all four of the films in general led to a bit more open-mindedness with the studio to allow a better blend of hoax and supernatural stories like there can be a certain element of like oh yeah it's just a guy in a mask but they could also tell stories about really scary supernatural stuff and scott already mentioned it my favorite series in the entire franchise mystery incorporated has all yes. of this stuff there is dna of all of this in that show the supernatural elements the will they won't they romances and the hex girls the hex girls are also in the show it's so good and i love it like the hex girls showing up basically everywhere is really kind of the biggest lasting effect of this film they've become just as much of a fixture as many of the monsters and many of the concepts in scooby-doo yes. and whenever they show up i'm always like yes give me more hex girls let's do this it is a crime that they did not show up in either of the live action scooby-doo <sighs> movies let me let me i i've got this thing about the first scooby-doo movie where <laughs> i think they should have recast a lot of the characters in place of people who are, are actually in there for the scooby-doo franchise like there's like a voodoo guy in the first movie who's just nobody they, he gets dropped totally by like the last third of the movie that could have been flim flam from 13 ghosts uh emil mondavarius who owns the amusement park 
in the in the movie should have been uh, Vincent Van Gogh. Absolutely, been so no good. question. And more more fun casting trivia from Scott here. There is a rumor. I don't think this has ever been confirmed, but there's a rumor that originally, instead of Rowan Atkinson for that role, they were going to get Tim Curry oh. to voice. But he said, "I don't want to do it." Because I don't like Scrappy and Scrappy in this movie. <laughs> Scrappy Doo once again ruining good things for Scooby Doo. I know. What think of what we could have had. And I bring all that up because there is a scene in this in that first movie where what is it? Like Sugar Ray or something is performing. <laughs> yeah. Imagine if that was the Hex Girls. Like just a cameo, you know what I mean? Just oh, like would have been keep amazing. It in, keep it in universe. It would have been so good, but oh well. And I do love that every single time that there is a new show of Scooby-Doo, the Hex Girls inevitably show up yeah. in different forms, different costumes. You know, at one point in Mr. Incorporated, they like fully dive into like the Lolita, like anime inspired design. And it's, mm -hmm. it harkens right back to this film. And honestly, uh, the witch's ghost still kind of stands for me as my favorite of the films. It's, I don't think it's necessarily the best, but with how much it's influenced the franchise and how much it, you know, means to me on a personal level, it's definitely up there for one of the best Scooby-Doo movies that they've ever had. I think, I mean, I think that's the thing that matters, right? What, how much it impacts you on a personal level, level is, is the, most important part of it. I grew up loving Cyber Chase, and I have only since learned in, in the last couple of years that I am in the exact minority of people who like that. People hate that movie. It is, I, I will say, like, I get it. I get why people don't like it. But for me, there was something really interesting about it where you, it allowed you to have real quote-unquote monsters because they were in a digital space where they yeah. could harm the crew but also have a mystery that you can solve at the end of the day of someone being behind it and it also paid homage to a lot of classic scooby-doo monsters yes. so there's like a lot of elements that i like of it it's not a good movie i rewatched no. it recently it's quite <laughs> boring but for me it was one of my favorite movies growing up and so for that reason i have to like it i'm forced to like it eric <laughs> i have to because it's so it, it meant so much to me growing up and i think witch's ghost being this thing that meant so much to you growing up i think is the most important part about all of this even if it didn't lead to any sort of lasting effects even if it, the hex girls were never introduced i won't i don't want that to be i don't want reality. that world no 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 no, no. <laughs> but even still if it if it was something that meant so much to you and influenced you like that's the most important part and i think that's great and i think we should celebrate that absolutely agree and i will say cyber chase does also have one of the best montages in these four films where they're going through all the different levels yes. and it has that incredible gag where the scooby gang meets up with their classic counterparts who mm -hmm. have been digitized such a good such a good little it took me way too long to realize hey why is shaggy wearing a red shirt he's he's meeting up with his classic counterpart that wears a red shirt shaggy wears green <laughs> i was i i i long for the days when i was naive to the fact of 13 ghosts of <laughs> existing 
red shirt Shaggy has mm. left uh, a lasting imprint on Scott, as we can <laughs> as we can see here. Thankfully, but... not on the whole franchise. <laughs> <laughs> so as we're wrapping up here, as we're getting ready to uh, kind of finish out, and this is you know as this episode drops, this coming weekend is Halloween. Do you have any final mm. thoughts on um, on Witch's Ghost, on Scooby Doo, and kind of on the Halloween season? You know, I love watching these movies around this time of year because as you were saying, you got you get these fall vibes, the atmosphere is just right, the the weather depending on the part of the world you live in, of course, it just feels like crisp is like the best way to describe it. It's it's just so nice and curling up inside and watching these movies that are again gorgeously animated. The voice cast is so good. The the stories behind them are so different to what you get in other Scooby-Doo media that it just feels like these are so special. These are special little nuggets of Scooby-Doo art that I think is so fun. And I'm so glad I got to rewatch it and talk about it with you. Thanks, man. Yeah, it was it was a blast getting to dive into this with you. I knew as soon as I wanted to put something with Scooby-Doo on that I wanted to have you on and have you back. <laughs> um, but uh, if our listeners would like to follow up with you, if they'd like to follow up with what you're doing and keep up to date with all the happenings going on with NerdSync, how can they how can they reach you? Oh my gosh, I have so many things going on right now. Um, really does. My my the main thing that I do is my YouTube channel called NerdSync, uh, N E R D S Y N C. I do video essays about comics, superheroes, cartoons. I'm doing a lot of Scooby Doo stuff this month. Go check it out; it's a ton of fun. I also have a D and D podcast that I'm on called Late to the Party. If you're yes. into D and D stuff, and I also just launched a, another podcast with uh, with my buddy Tristan called It's Probably Not Aliens, where we uh, go through the show Ancient Aliens from the History Channel and debunk a lot of their uh, claims and also teach you about real world history of ancient civilizations. So that is three radically different things. <laughs> if you like video essays about cartoons and comics, if you like learning history and debunking conspiracy theories, or if you like listening to D&D <laughs> podcasts, those are three completely different things that you could listen to or watch me do if that interests you i'm just trying to get myself out in every single direction <laughs> hoping that anything that i do hits all these different audiences and and scott is legitimately one of the only people who could make that work i mean he's doing his own mystery incorporated on that podcast and i i love that i love the idea of like taking this show and really like diving into whether or not maybe it is aliens maybe it's not um and <laughs> Genuinely, Scott is so good at being able to teach concepts that, you know, one of I've and I've said it on the podcast before, but one of the main influences on this podcast is Scott's NerdSync channel. So if Aww. you like the stuff that I do here, guaranteed you will like the stuff that Scott does. Um, he was also if you know the name Scott, if the name NerdSync sounds familiar, he was my DM for that at-home Comic-Con panel. I was gonna say, you were amazing. That was so much fun. It was a blast. And I have I have been very um, blessed in the fact that I have had amazing DMs anytime I've played a game and 
Scott is absolutely up there as well. Like it's it's ridiculous. So go check out his D and D podcast. Yes. Um, it's called Late to the Party. I don't know if I said that, but a fun fun tie into the subject matter. My my current character on this season is Qwerty the Mystery Machine. Yes, I have to make Scooby Doo references everywhere <laughs> I go. So yeah, go check out Scott's stuff. He's always doing creative things. Um, if you can as well, support him on Patreon. You absolutely get your money's worth. I myself have a wonderful little wonderful nerd pin that I adore and treasure. Um, but yeah, so when it comes to Scooby-Doo, when it comes to the Hex Girls, when it comes to Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost and the entire story of Scooby-Doo, the success that they found, the lasting legacy that these films and really the concept of the Mystery Incorporated gang has um, left in pop culture in Halloween and the spooky season, there really isn't a mystery as to why people love them so much. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now we're going to be reviewing episodes number six and seven of Doom Patrol season three. Uh, two really, really good episodes. I got to say, I've been really enjoying the Sisterhood of Dada story that's been kind of laced through this entire season so far. And these two episodes make a great one-two punch because we left off at the end of episode five with Rita deciding to jump in the time machine. Didn't know where she was going, didn't know the course that was plotted, but as we open up with episode number six entitled 1917 Patrol, we see right where we left off Rita going back, back, back in time. And as we do, it's really interesting how we see the amnesia effects get Im kind of imposed on her because she's, you know, reliving all the stuff that's been hurting her. She's been you know, going through all of the memories that really have traumatized her and caused her so much distress. And I think it's interesting that maybe going through time forces you to relive these memories. I'm not sure exactly the mechanics of it. But as she starts to cry, and there's this weird narration throughout the entire thing as well, as she starts to cry every tear becomes one of those memories and you see the tears like flow out of her eyes and kind of float up into the air and we now know why when Laura popped out of the time machine at the beginning of the season she didn't remember who she was because those tears are Rita's memories and so when she hops out of the time machine they're gone as well so I don't know what implications this really has on everything. Um, it is a very interesting thing to think about, though. Uh, so as we pop up in 1917, I loved the cameo for uh, the Brain and Mala, who are at this point very much still in the opening stages, the early development stages of the Brotherhood of Evil. Uh, I just, I love seeing them. I love seeing them, even if they never 
actually end up going against the current Doom Patrol in the show. I've loved the use of them throughout this season so far. But this really is kind of the uh, the Rita and Laura episode. Back in the present day, uh, Kay. Kay gets to go up. We see Kay's day out. Um, she takes over. She goes into town. And it's really sweet for part of it. Um, except when she decides to steal this little girl's bike. Um, really interesting stuff. I think it's... And we'll talk about it a little bit more with the next episode, but I'm not sure exactly where they're going with Kay and with the underground as a whole, but the next episode really does kind of start to put that in perspective. But in 1917, oh, I, I'll just get the other present day stuff out of the way so I can just gush about the 1917 stuff um we pick up with Larry as well who found his son wandering around in the um in the woods when they went to go meet the sisterhood of Dada and we find out that Larry's son has now become a member of the brotherhood of normalcy after the death of his of his son after the death after you know they had that whole uh roundup at the family reunion slash funeral deal um it was very very cool to get them in a room with larry and his son and i loved the monologue that larry gave telling his son you know just because you know we've been estranged and we've spent so much time apart and you don't see me as your dad doesn't make anything that i experienced as your dad any less real um he says it much more eloquently than i did just now but it was such a beautiful moment where larry kind of he says you may never forgive me but i can forgive myself and it was a huge moment for larry a huge step forward for him really really loved it his son leaves but then larry has an issue which we'll get into in the next episode um cliff cliff is kind of in my shit list this week for both this episode and next episode um he's been overdosing on his um on his medication, he's been making really poor decisions, you know, selling all of the Doom Patrol's stuff, their most valuable possessions, getting into online gambling and cam girls, and just just spiraling down. And I don't know what the direction is for Cliff, but they're if they're trying to make him unlikable, there you go. You have successfully somehow made Brendan Fraser unlikable. Bravo. Bravo. Um... I hope there's a good payoff for this. I really, really do. Uh, but one journey that I'm very excited about is Cyborg, actually. Cyborg has, over this episode and next episode, but really the entire season as a whole, has really gotten some awesome moments. Um, he is trying to retrace the steps that his uh, mom talked about when they were in heaven and he was talking to her. So he goes to the hiking trail and he goes to um, goes to that trail that his mom talked about, finds the rocks that uh, her and his father, you know, collected and put there. And he kind of breaks down. It was really sad. It was very, very sad. Uh, There's also this moment with the two hikers who were like taking pictures without his consent and everything. It's it's, you know, 
this show has a very interesting perspective and i really like that they're able to tell stories like stories with jane and then story you know about mental health and about abuse and about surviving that and then they're also you know able to tell stories with cyborg about internet fame and the trials and tribulations that come with that about being othered and it's just very very cool so at the end of this he decides that he is going to make a decision that will uh get paid off next episode but like I said before, this really is the Laura and Rita episode. Um, when Rita eventually gets rounded up by the, at this point, um, I believe they're the Bureau of Oddities. Um, they bring in they bring in Rita, who doesn't remember anything. But as she reaches into the pocket of her like her boiler suit, her coveralls, she pulls out a little slip of paper that says Laura Demille. Sisterhood of Dada. And she sits down and she's like, Yeah, my name's Laura DeMille. And the person behind the desk puts her name tag in front or her name placard in front of Rita and it says Laura DeMille. We now know where Laura comes from. Laura was part of the Bureau of Oddities or would eventually become the Bureau of Normalcy. And I loved the Laura meets Laura moment. Um, Rita eventually takes on the name Bendy, and we see that we we see all of the um, all of the members of the Sisterhood of Dada here. You know, it's a very much a freaks and geeks situation where they're you know the outcasts with all the like the normal looking agents, and then they are kind of the freaks. They are the ones who have powers and are strange and. At this point, it looks like since it is 1917, we're in the midst of World War One. Um, the metas that are brought into the bureau are given either one of two designations. They're either uh, like utility or mailroom or whatever, or they're weapons. And Laura meets all of the you know mailroom metas and i really i just i loved it i loved her meeting them all of them are the same ones except for a very specific one this guy who can turn invisible but also has like a bird cage in his chest very weird stuff we get into it more in the next episode um but we kind of get the big reveal that the original sisterhood of dada was just these dorks who had this like you know nightly or weekly get together where they just like wax poetic and like talk about art and like dance and make weird sounds and play charades and it was just it was fun it was very very fun i loved getting to see this development with them um we get to see the lunchroom rebellion where for most of the episode they're forced to eat lunch in their little hovel but they decide they're gonna sit in the normal kids uh, cafeteria lunchroom and then they all start you know bouncing around and singing and everything we get that amazing transition doom patrol is the only show that can transition from these weirdos making you know these wacky like charades esque games into transition seamlessly into lady gaga um masterfully done masterfully done this is why you come to doom patrol to see episodes like this uh but as the lunchroom rebellion really kind of gets out of hand one of the guards comes and takes them away but the guard is revealed to be laura madam mask is in full effect laura is part of the sisterhood of dada i love this um 
And then as they, you know, kind of get out of there, uh, everything is, you know, seemingly going swimmingly, and Rita decides to stay. She has fallen in love with the Invisible Man, um, all these dorks that are just, like, you know, trying to see the beauty in life, even though they're in very uh, not-so-beautiful situations. I I loved it. I loved the... I just... I loved the energy. I loved the... Um, the whole pathos behind the group. Really, really cool stuff. Rita decides to stay in the past at the very same moment that Laura in the present gets the this flaming effigy that says, Tonight. Oh, man. And that brings us to episode 7, entitled Bird Patrol. And this episode was uh, my least favorite of the two, but... Still, really, really good stuff. Um, in the present day, we get to see uh, Cyborg examining his options for synth skin. He goes to um, this company that I guess specializes in it, uh, who the owner or the main surgeon or whatever knew his dad, knew Silas. And I guess 9-11 happened in this version of the DC Universe because Star Labs, I guess after 9-11 became a weapons-focused uh, uh, science division, kind of similar to the Bureau of Oddities slash Bureau of Normalcy. And I love the parallel there. But Cyborg is examining his options. He, you know, they're able to do it, but they basically say that if we're going to do this, we have to take out all of your, like, offensive cybernetic components so yeah you'll be able to look like a normal person but you won't be able to do any of the things that cyborg can do and so he calls ronnie um i'm not sure what they're doing with ronnie um i don't know if this is the last time we're going to see ronnie or not i've been kind of disappointed with the usage of ronnie in this season and kind of her end game if she comes back great if she doesn't i don't feel like she's going to be missed as much and i hate to say that but i'm just not engaged with her um, but Cyborg is about to make this decision. He's about to go under. He is about to go through the procedure. Meanwhile, Cliff, after Jane and the rest of her personalities figure out that, um, that he sold all of their stuff to feed his gambling addiction, is sent home. He's sent to, uh, his daughter Claire's, um, house, and he's, you know, having a relapse and he's again he's just terrible he's a terrible person here i don't know what they're doing with him uh larry meanwhile uh at the end of last episode was basically about to throw up his tumor which ends up being this slug i don't know what the deal is with this slug but it can't be good they keep referring to it as the parasite which means that's a bad thing um and larry is strangely like um He's 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 strangely parenting it like he's like really babying it. He tries to like burn it and throw it out, but like he can't and he's becoming very like matronly to it. I, I don't know how to describe it, but this is a bad thing. I can only assume. Um, and speaking of Jane. Jane has her official identity crisis. She comes to Kay, who, as we find out or as we found out last episode, you know, took the bike, took it into the underground. Everything was fine. But when Kay woke up in the underground the next day, the bike was gone. 
Um, Jane tried to figure out what was going on, and the underground has rebelled again. Um, except now they're rebelling against Jane and against Kay. Uh, Jane, you know, there's this great moment where Jane's like, we were created to protect Kay. And one of the personalities, I can't remember her name for the life of me, and I feel really bad about that. But she yells out, you know, and who's supposed to protect us? So now, like, the uh, all of the identities are now, like, they're off the prime directive. They're, like, we are in self-preservation mode. Because if Kay gets better, she doesn't need them anymore. So, really interesting. Um, I'm glad that we have a direction for Jane. I've, I said before, I was kind of wondering where she was going to go next because she felt a little aimless. But... Super excited, super excited to see what they do with her going forward. But that kind of brings us to uh, flashing back and continuing Rita's story. We've now cut to the Bureau in 1949. They are now the Bureau of Normalcy. Um, And it starts off with this great little interview as Laura, who hasn't aged a day because Michelle Gomez is what? stunning um michelle michelle laura is interviewing this guy and he introduces himself as wally sage wally sage the creator of flex mentalo hello um oh man i loved it i loved it i loved it i loved it getting to see him was awesome but what's not awesome is that war has changed laura and the sisterhood of dada war has affected them with Laura, she's just, she's tired. She's gone through two world wars now. She sent probably hundreds of metas to their death. Wally wants to be part of the marketing department. And Laura decides to make him a weapon. Designates him as a weapon, ships him off. And Rita is very disturbed by this. Or Bendy, I guess. Uh, meanwhile, with Dada, they are, too are very disillusioned with everything. Now they're no longer this weird theater kid troupe. Now they are wanting to enact change. They are activists. They are seeing the evil in the world and wanting to do something about it. And at the end of the uh, of the flashback segment, Laura rounds all of the Sisterhood of Dada up and designates them all for the weapons division, which ends up in the shooting death of the Invisible Man uh, right in front of Rita. And Rita is able to escape. And then we cut to tonight. We cut to present day. Everyone is whisked away by the fog to this area where they see this giant bird cage, not dissimilar to the one that was inside the chest of the Invisible Man. And inside, instead of the bird, the little canary that was inside the Invisible Man's chest, it's just this giant like mouth of the Invisible Man with these like butterfly slash like dragonfly-esque wings. And the Sisterhood of Dada has plans. They're basically, they wisp away Laura. Laura finally remembers because they take her and the rest of the Doom Patrol into the uh, the very room where the Sisterhood of Dada used to meet, uh, where the Invisible Man was killed and where the da- Sisterhood of Dada was betrayed by Laura. And they want Laura to set free this creature this mouth this thing that's inside of this giant bird cage and rita's there rita's there we don't know if rita has just like lived for the past like you know 
what would this be 50 60 70 almost 80 years at this point um just lived through everything with you know everything going on or if she took the time machine back we're not sure completely um but she has a vendetta because Laura cost her her friends and her found family once and when Laura refuses to apologize and refuses to open the cage to make things right Rita rips the door open turning this giant thing into millions of smaller little mouths with wings and the eternal flagellation has begun every single one of the doom patrol gets teleported away by one of the creatures and that is where we leave off um crazy stuff crazy crazy stuff uh this is the kind of whacked out doom patrol storytelling that we would assume to get from this series and i am here for it i don't know exactly what the eternal flagellation is um we'll see i'm excited so tune in next week as we take a look at episode eight of doom patrol season three but for now let's roll right on into this week's comics countdown welcome back to this week's comics countdown this is the segment of our show where i talk about the comics that i think you should be picking up this week whether it's at your local comic book shop a comiXology or however you get your comics these are the ones i think you should definitely take a look at but before we get into this week's books we got to take a look back because there's two weeks worth of picks that I need to discuss with the Geek Explain pick of the week of last week. So a couple weeks ago, we had a bunch of books come out. Uh, my pick of the week for the week before last week was The Amazing Spider-Man number 76, written by Zeb Wells with art by Patrick Gleason. Um, what a great book. That really, it reminds you why you love Peter Parker as a character. Um, ben Riley, I am so excited to see where he goes from here. What a cliffhanger, too. Um, cannot wait. Cannot wait to see the next chapter in this. Amazing Spider-Man. If you have been waiting to dive back into the Spidey books, if you weren't a fan of the Nick Spencer run, now is the time to jump back in. You need to be picking up this book. And then last week, honestly, there were quite a few books that were up in the running, but for me, it was The Death of Doctor Strange number two. Um, I just, man, I loved it. Once again, Jed McKay on writing duties, this time with art by Lee Garbett. Um, this book is so good. This book is really, really good. Um, the Ditko creations have gotten some love these last couple weeks. Really great stuff. Can't wait to continue on with this story. But that's last week's books. We've got to take a look at this week's books. And this week we've got five... 10, 11 books. Lots of books to talk about, so let's go ahead and dive on into it. Started things off with a brand new number one. This is Aquaman Green Arrow Deep Target number one. This is written by Brandon Thomas with art by Ronan Claquette. And, I mean, it's Aquaman and Green Arrow. I mean, I would much prefer just a straight up Green Arrow book but I understand that uh, Aquaman is going through a bit of a, uh, a resurgence lately and I'm excited to see where they go with this so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here 
celebrating the 80th anniversary of Aquaman and Green Arrow. The shadowy organization known as Scorpio has resurfaced, and it's larger than before. While looting the past for artifacts and treasure, they have somehow altered the timeline, and only Aquaman and Green Arrow can fix it. Celebrating the 80th anniversaries of Aquaman and Green Arrow, this high-octane story takes this unlikely pair from the depths of Atlantis into the surface world. So that sounds pretty cool. Um, I guess it does make sense since they're both celebrating their 80th anniversary alongside Wonder Woman this year. Um, good stuff all around. Looking forward to seeing what they do with this book. Next up, another brand new number one. We have DC versus Vampires number one. This is written by James Tynan IV and Matthew Rosenberg with art by Otto Schmidt. Um, this is one of two very exciting um what do you want to call it, uh, Halloween spooky-esque stories that are going to be living far beyond this October. Uh, this is going to be issue number one of 12, so this is going to be a monthly maxi-series, 12 issues taking us from this October into next October. Fingers crossed, we'll see if that happens. But this sounds really fun, it sounds like a fun idea. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. DC vs. Vampires is a special standalone 12-issue maxi-series that will pit the Justice League against a secret army of vampires, leaving our heroes unsure of who they can trust. So yeah, short, sweet, to the point, tells you everything you need to know going into this. It's, it's Justice League versus the vampires. What do you, what do you need? Next up, we have Wonder Girl number four. This is written by Joelle Jones with art also by Joelle Jones, as well as Adriana Mello and Jordi Belair. Uh, this book's been good. I am a little surprised that we're only up to issue four. It feels like we should be up farther than this, but... Who knows? Um, time is a flat circle, so maybe this is this book is coming out on time. But I've been enjoying the book so far. I'm interested to see if they're going to get us on a um, on a path, you know, get us on track to where we know where we're going. Um, we'll just have to see. But I have been enjoying it so far. The art is gorgeous, um, and I am excited to see where Yara Floor goes next. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Who are the Escasida? With her physical training in full swing, Yara must now look inward. Her childhood in Brazil has always been a mystery, spoken of in hushed tones by her aunt and uncle. What were they not telling her? The answers lie in the Amazon rainforest, but is this young hero ready for the truth? Plus, the two heroes hot on Yara's trail have finally found their target. So, that's really exciting. We did see on the previous issue that Cassie, as well as Artemis, are hot on the trail of Yara. So, it looks like we are going to get a Wonder Girl slash Artemis reunion here. Next up, we have Marauders number 25. This is written by Jerry Duggan with art by Phil Noto. Love me some Phil Noto. Very excited to see his name on this. 
But Marauders has been great. We are uh, heading towards the end here, it feels like. Um, everything's kind of coming to a to a head, and in the most recent uh, Marvel previews, they kind of listed issue 27 as like the final issue, potentially. I'm not ready for it to be over, but we'll have to see. I'm very excited. I've been loving the Marauders book, and if it goes out with a bang, at least it goes out swinging. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Queen of Diamond. You don't cross Emma Frost, even if she was the one who crossed you first. The Marauders' trip into space gets bloody, and in space, no one can hear you bleed. Looks like we're going to have a diamond throwdown. I love me some Emma Frost. I'm glad that she's part of this book. I've always loved her as part of this book. Um, Space Marauders. I'm enjoying it. I'm digging it. Next up, we have Robin number seven. This is written by Joshua Williamson with art by Gleb Melnikov. Um, my little... I, I told this to a buddy of mine this past week who uh, is still kind of on the outskirts of comics and everything, but... This is your shonen, you know, tournament manga comic right now, or at least DC's closest approximation towards it. Um, I've been really digging it. You know how much I love tournament stories, uh, and I've been really enjoying the development of everyone. I think certain characters, like Raptor, should have been in here far longer than they were, but that's just me. Uh, but I've been really enjoying this. Looking forward to seeing what they do next. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. The final four. It was the smooch heard round the world, and it's the one thing Damian Wayne didn't see coming his way in the Lazarus Tournament. As Robin battles for the secrets of eternal life against the deadliest killers on the planet, can he, will he, dare he survive a girlfriend? So yeah, uh, really fun stuff, getting into the shonen anime tropes. I'm really, I just, I like it. I think it's cool. So I'm digging it, looking forward to picking this up. Next up, we have Inferno number two. This is written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Stefano Caselli. Inferno, man. Inferno came out swinging. I really, really love Jonathan Hickman's era of X-Men. It is coming to an end. I don't know what's going to happen. I am very curious and very afraid. I'm nervous. But Inferno number one was so good. Can't wait to see Inferno number two. Let's dive into the synopsis. Feel the fire. Secrets. Lies. They have a way of coming out and biting you when you least expect them. The secrets and lies of Krakoa will shake it to its foundation. I mean, yeah. <laughs> this feels blockbuster. It feels like a big deal. Cannot wait to pick this book up. Next up, we have Task Force Z number one. This is the other spooky, spooky DC book that's coming out. This is, I don't know how many issues this is going to be. Um, might be another limited series, might be an ongoing. It doesn't say one of anything, so this is just number one. Written by Matthew Rosenberg, art by Eddie Barrows. Um, really excited to see what this does. Um, the concept, I think, is very interesting. This is a direct consequence from A-Day, from everything that's going on. But it's also, you know, 
it's a spooky book for the spooky season just in time for Halloween. So I think it's a great concept. It's fun. It is, it's got two of my favorite creators on it. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. On a day, hundreds of Gotham City's most dangerous and deranged criminals were left dead after an attack on Arkham Asylum, and now they're getting a second chance at life. A mysterious benefactor is bringing together a new task force and has recruited the only person who could lead them, someone who knows what it's like to come back from a brutal death. Red Hood. Now, Jason Todd has to unravel the mystery surrounding this team of the recently deceased, while leading a lineup of some of Gotham City's worst criminals who've ever lived. Bane, Manbat, the Arkham Knight, Sundowner, and Mr. Blue. Mr. Bloom! I love me some Mr. Bloom. Um, super heavy forever. Super heavy. Um, but I'm really excited to see what they do with this. I don't know. I don't. I still don't know who Sundowner is. I just don't. But I'm very interested to see what they do with this. This is looking to be something special. Next up, speaking of special, we have The Good Asian number six. I love me, The Good Asian. We are back. Uh, this is written by Pornsak Pachetschot with art by Alexandra Tefenki as well as Lee Luffridge. Oh, it's good to be back. Um, it does look like they had to kind of shuffle around the Good Asians um, release schedule to make sure they got that first uh, trade out. First trade is out. Go pick it up. Go check it out. Good Asian's amazing. Um, but I've been loving this book so far. It's wonderful. Can't get enough of it. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. On the run from the police, Edison Hawk heads to the only person he can for help and confronts a long-avoided past. You got the bullet points there. That's what it is. So I am very excited. I've been loving uh, getting some more backstory on Edison as well. Love this book. Pick this up. Next up, we have Daredevil number 35. This is written, of course, by Chip Zdarsky with art by Stefano Landini and Francesco Mobili. So, obviously, Marco Cicchetto is getting ready for Devil's Reign. Uh, got a nice little preview in the Marvel previews of that. It looks gorgeous. So, I'm very excited to check this out. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Lockdown. Part 5. Lockdown continues as Bullseye reigns over NYC. From the series that's taken the comics world by storm for over two years, it's the grudge match of the century. Bullseye versus Elektra. Grudge match of the century is an understatement. Elektra has just become the new Daredevil, and Bullseye is ready to kill her already. Um, I am very excited about this. I've been waiting for this matchup. Elektra has come a long way. We've had brief reunions between the two over the years, but this feels, like I said with Inferno, it feels blockbuster. It feels big time, and it feels like a big deal. Cannot wait to pick 
this up. Next up, we have Detective Comics number 1044. This is written by Mariko Tamaki and Stephanie Phillips with art by Dan Mora and David Lafam. Lafam. Uh, I if I said that wrong, I apologize. But I am uh, I'm excited about this. This is a Fear State tie-in. We've got uh, some really interesting stuff coming out of this. We've got some exciting things cooking alongside Fear State. We're also talking about some stuff that's going to be taking over the Bat Books as we go forward. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Fear State, part two, slash foundations, part one. When the terrorist organization known as the Red Crown took control of Mayor Nakano's personal security detail, only the Batman could protect Gotham's highest-ranking city official from certain death. But when the pair is thrust into the sewers below, a much more sinister threat lurks in the darkness. Better look sharp, Batman, because a hundred thousand eggs with a hundred thousand little monsters inside are about to hatch, and they look hungry. Arkham Asylum may have been decimated during A-Day, but its legacy lives on. Now, Mayor Nakano has given the green light for a brand new Arkham Tower to be erected in the heart of Gotham City, and some strange and horrific things are going down at the construction site. Don't miss this epic kickoff to a story arc that will shape the Batman universe for years to come. So what's cool about Batman Detective Comics lately is it's been this... Great book, this amazing book by Mariko Tamaki and Dan Mora. But at the same time, it's also been this second story. It's been the second story that allows it to give all the backups are just openings for new stuff to happen. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. It's been so good so far. Really been enjoying it. Um, And we're about to get more Vile. You know how much I've been enjoying Vile. Can't wait to pick this book up. But of course, the big book of the week for me, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up alongside Inferno, alongside Daredevil, is, of course, The Amazing Spider-Man number 77. uh, With a story by the Beyond Board, written by Kelly Thompson with art by Sarah Pacelli. Love seeing the two of them together. We've got Beyond Chapter 3. Cannot wait to see what they do next with this. Again, the cliffhanger from 76 had me on the edge of my seat. Can't wait to pick this up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Beyond Chapter 3. Kelly Thompson and Sarah Pacelli pick up the baton to define this new era for Spider-Man. The Beyond Corporation has retuned, and this is your chance to meet the people who've brought you the new and improved Spider-Man. There's a target on Spider-Man's back, and one of his classic villains is out for blood. So, that's awesome. I hope we get a look at what happens to Peter. Um, I don't like that they didn't touch on that. But I, of course, am very excited to have Ben Riley in the in the suit, him in center stage, and it's only sweeter because we get Kelly Thompson and Sarah Pacelli on it. So that does it for this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, we have Aquaman Green Arrow Deep Target number one, DC vs. Vampires number one, Wonder Girl number four, Marauders number 25, Robin number seven, Inferno number two, Task Force Z number one, The Good Asian number six, Daredevil number 35, Detective Comics number 1044, and The Amazing Spider-Man number 77. 
And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geeksplained podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice and give me a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and honestly, ratings, reviews, and especially subscriptions really does help me out, really helps the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space, kind of raises our stock up and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast. You can join the likes of our Almost Dirty Dozen, that includes Seafire ND, Josh from Panels to Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork, Dallas Meeks, Amazing Spider Fan, and Alok and AZ. I want to say a huge thank you to these fine folks for their reviews, and I cannot wait to hear yours. Also, if you want to be part of our Geeksplained mailbag, feel free to email me. Send emails to geeksplained at gmail.com. Put mailbag in the subject header, and I will read them here on the podcast. Um, I asked for it, and you guys delivered uh, some mailbag here some mailbag goodness for you thank you to everyone who wrote in over the past two weeks really appreciate it so let's just go ahead and dive into these first we have an email from michael cox big fan of michael cox he's been with us for a long time thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for writing in Michael writes, Hello, Eric. To celebrate Geektober, I want to play a game. Ooh, all right. Says, the rule is simple. Answer the following question. Would you rather be forced to play a game by Jigsaw or play in the Squid Games? So, I will say that while I was sick, while I was having uh, trouble getting out of bed, I did binge the entirety of Squid Games in a day. It just happened. I wasn't doing anything. I couldn't go anywhere. So it just happened. And I loved that show. I love the show so much. If you haven't watched it, give it a watch, though. If you're squeamish or easily uh, disturbed, I would probably steer clear. It's a show that I never need to watch again because of what it did to me emotionally. But I really, 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 really enjoyed it uh when it comes to those games i think i would and maybe it's just because it's fresher in my mind i would probably try my luck in the squid games because the games are easy to understand the rules at least when it comes to jigsaw's games with the different you know jigsaw jigsaw copycats um the games can change at the drop of a hat there have been games that jigsaw or some of his copycats have changed the rules of in the middle of when it comes to the squid games everything is straightforward you just gotta win and survive so i think honestly i would rather do squid games because it's clearer and i think it would be easier to win but neither of them are a very good situation let's be honest here next up we have a letter from russell swinehart always good to hear from him uh thank or swinehammer i am so sorry russell thank you so much for writing in all right and he writes i'm gonna i'm gonna try to give this my best here we go i come from the net through systems peoples and cities to this place mainframe my format Guardian, to mend and defend, to defend my newfound friends, their hopes and dreams, to defend them from their enemies. They say the user lives outside the net and inputs games for pleasure. No one knows for sure, but I intend to find out. 
Ah, he he took the time. Russell did took the time to type out the entire intro to reboot. Uh, if you've been following along with the book club, Geek Explain book club every Friday, we're tackling a different. Um, volume of invincible we are getting to the end or as malcolm would say we're almost there and for one of the uh, most recent episodes i made a reboot reference and obviously i have a kindred spirit in russell swinehammer so he writes i love your show my dude thank you so much uh this last episode of the book club was especially great i've been listening since the beginning because i watched the show and enjoyed it thoroughly the ending of this episode though gave me fucking chills reboot was my jam back in 95 96 hearing that made my day thank you for that i committed the open line the opening lines from the show to memory. I do have one question. As a voice actor yourself, what do you think of Hasbro slash Universal hiring Ron Perlman to play Optimus Primal instead of Gary Chalk? Do you think more original voice actors should be hired for bigger productions? Always. Always, always, always. Now, we don't know Gary Chalk's situation. We don't know if he was unavailable. We don't know if Ron Perlman, who has done lots of stuff in voice acting, he is a prolific voice actor alongside his uh, on-screen work. We don't know what the situation was with the recast. Um, Optimus Primal, as I've talked before, is very near and dear to my heart, um, as is Reboot, as we came to find out. Um, But I do think that if nothing else uh original voice actors should be hired for bigger productions however i understand how the biz works you know we had um um i can't remember his name uh is the voice of tweety bird uh was recently uh recast without his knowledge didn't know that he was recast until the broadcast that happens all the time. It doesn't matter how big you are. It doesn't matter, you know, how much success you've had. You're always at the whim of the producers and the team behind the film. And recasts happen. They happen frequently and they happen often. So I'm not sure what the situation was for that. I love Ron Perlman. I love Optimus Primal. I think putting them together is wonderful and I think he's going to do a great job. However, when I do see Optimus Primal not speaking with Gary Chalk's voice, I will be a little let down. That's just me. That's my bias and I'm sure Russell feels the same way. Um, But yeah, I I do think that in the current climate where it seems like stunt casting is more prevalent than ever when it comes to voiceover, the voice actors who brought those characters to life should always be the first option. But that's just me. That's my two cents on that. So uh, next up, we have a letter from one dallas taylor dallas taylor host of the comics collective go check them out they are wonderful they are one of the best comics podcasts on the web currently in the game right now all three of the hosts dallas alexis and Anne, are wonderful go check them out if you like what i do here you'll love what they're doing so dallas writes in and he writes with the uh with the caption pressing question and i saw this and i was like oh this is important He writes, if your recurring guests were all in a season of pro wrestling together, what roles would they play? What character arcs do you see for each of them? What matchups would be the most important? Feel free to go wild with this one. So, I am going to say, just as a, um, actually, there are no seasons in professional wrestling. It's 365, 52 weeks a year. But... 
I know what he's saying. I know what he's saying. Um, if all my recurring guests, so recurring guests means you have to have been in more than two episodes. So now that counts uh, Malcolm Russell Nelson, that counts uh, Matt Draper, that counts Owen from Owen Likes Comics. Um, I'm trying to think of other recurring guests. Um, there's so many, I've had so many great guests at this point. They're, they're all amazing. They're all wonderful. Um, but we'll, we'll just say for this, for, for the sake of brevity, we'll say for this specific question, cause I mean, I could go wild with my pro wrestling bookings, but we'll say as a fantasy booking, we'll have Malcolm, we'll have Matt and we'll have Owen. Obviously, Triple threat match to start off to crown the uh, first world champion, first Geek Explained world champion, Geek Explained Championship Wrestling GCW. I know there is a GCW, but now it's, or we'll we'll say it's the Geek the GSPW or GSCW Geek Explained Championship Wrestling. Uh, first champion has to be Matt. You got to put your first title on the heel, and Matt is the biggest heel in Comic Tube, and. Matt, I think, would hold on to that belt. He'd have a great blood feud with Owen. Two of them having incredible matches. I think there's got to be an Iron Man match in there. There's got to be a No Holds Barred match. And they would round out their feud with an incredible barbed wire exploding death match, which, of course, Matt would... Neither of them would retain over the uh, over the draw. They would neither of neither of them would be able to reach the count. The entire building would explode. We don't know what would happen, but Matt would escape with the title. I think having uh, Malcolm come in at this point, he you know he's an up and cover. He's been doing this for a while, so he goes through. He has a bit of. Uh, Bit of fire, I'd say. Um, I guess if you want to count the book club as well, we can include Jacob Brown and uh, Chris Carter and uh, AJ Kincaid, who have also been in there. Um, I see Chris as a hell of a manager. Uh, Chris and AJ were part of the uh, Into the Snyderverse series that we did. Go check that out if you're a fan of the DC films. Um, And of course, Jacob Brown is the amazing amazing manager from as part of our uh, our geek explained book club but i think he would be managing malcolm the two of them would be a great you know one-two punch doing the um paul Heyman brock lesnar thing and so owen would you know go back down the card for a bit him and uh he would feud probably with uh with aj two of them i think could do some really great best of sevens while um let's say uh after that, um, after that series, we get some uh, some matches between um, between AJ and Matt for the title. From there, uh, AJ would end up forming a tag team with Chris and would be crowned the first ever GSCW tag team champions. While we would enter a blistering number one contenders tournament which throughout the year would find the two front runners being of course malcolm russell nelson as well as owen the two of them duking it out one-on-one in the finals of the tournament with malcolm eventually winning however 
Malcolm would get cheated out of his title shot by Matt Draper as Jacob Brown would turn heel. Doing away with Malcolm and joining up with Matt, the two of them continuing to reign over the GSCW roster until Owen once again wins a Royal Rumble Battle Royale to face Matt and finally in a three stages of hell match with the final fall being a hell in a cell match. Owen would take the title and take us into the next era of GSCW. So if I haven't lost you already, <laughs> uh, Owen would end up with the title and would open up a brand new uh, roster of roster full of matches. That would be the first year of GSCW. Thank you, Dallas, for that. And then finally, of course, we got a letter from the real deal himself, Brian Real. Uh, he writes in, hi, Eric. Hello. He says, I hope you are feeling better this week. I am. Thank you so much. Uh, he writes, I know you have been recovering all types of spooky content for this high holy season of scary stuff. I love that. But are there any scary podcasts you listen to or are interested in listening to? By far, horror podcasts have been the one form of media to consistently frighten me, not only in October, but year round when I need a good scare. I'd be lying if I said I never screamed out loud within the last year and a half of working from home while alone to something I thought I was happening in real life, only for it to be a part of the podcast I was listening to. I was wondering if you share in this interest of audio horror also what are you being for halloween be well and take care happy halloween best brian uh well for halloween i am going to be a uh, back to work schlub a normal dude going to work uh i am working that evening unfortunately but i'm looking forward to some late night halloween shenanigans perhaps after i get off of work when it comes to horror podcasts so podcasts i'm very um limited in my scope of the stuff that i listen to normally it's comic book podcasts and wrestling podcasts uh that's really kind of my scope of stuff i'll dip into other stuff here and there but I have heard nothing but good things about horror podcasts, true crime podcasts, narrative podcasts. I am a big fan of the um, the Wolverine podcast, the narrative podcasts like that. So if anyone has horror podcast recommendations they'd like to send to me, Brian or anyone else, feel free to send those to me. I'll give them a listen. Um, this is the right season for it, after all. So I will definitely give those a listen. Uh, but as of now, not really a horror podcast guy. Not really... Um, I don't really know which ones to listen to. So if you have recommendations, feel free to send them to me. But thank you so much to all these amazing people for writing in and being part of the Geek Explained mailbag for this week. Thank you to Brian. Thank you to Dallas. Thank you to Russell. And of course, thank you to Mike. Always love hearing from you. And again... If you want to write in and have your email read on the podcast, feel free to send your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com, put mailbag in the subject header, and I will read it on here. Look forward to reading some of your letters next week. And finally, if you want to keep up to date with the podcast, if you want to keep up to date with me, participate in polls that decide future episodes, or maybe you just want to shoot the shit on the latest geeky news, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at GeeksplainedPod. That's at GeeksplainedPod. Um, I am working on my Instagram uh, activity, but I am 
very frequently active on Twitter. So feel free to follow me there. Feel free to follow the podcast. We've got some great stuff coming up to round out the year. And I hope you've enjoyed Geektober. I had a ton of fun putting this together. I want to say the biggest thank you to Jessica Morgan, Matt Draper, Owen from Owen Likes Comics, and of course this week's guest, Scott Nicewander from the NerdSync YouTube channel. Thank you so much to all our wonderful guests. Thank you to all of them for coming on the podcast, talking about this spooky season. I hope you are having a great October. I hope you are doing well, and I hope you have some fun and safe Halloween plans. But That is going to do it for this week's episode. That's going to do it for the month of October. Check back in with me next week for the first episode of November. Same geek time, same geek channel. For those of you who are going to be going out for Halloween, please be safe, make good choices, and eat lots of candy. But for now, for Geeksplain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe, stay spooky, and we will see you next time. Hee <laughs>